Welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Show. This one is... Is this our first episode of the new year? I think we published one, but it's definitely our first recording. Dude, we're already like 17 days, 18 days in. Mm-hmm. 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 We've uh, been a bit slack. It was busy beginning of the year. We got a lot of adverts on the main channel this month, and they always keep me busy. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Mm-hmm. It is. It is nice. <laughs> it's busy. Um, uh, how's, how's your new year? Good. Good. Yourself? Good, yeah. I should also mention I'm a little bit I'm a little bit upset this morning. Why are you upset, Simon? <laughs> Why am I upset, David? Well, <laughs> I spent God knows how many hours trying to get this live streaming thing working, right? And there's okay, background for listeners. What we wanted to do is we wanted to live stream an episode of this podcast just for fun, and then we'd edit it and do all the like the nice touching up bits and then put it out on iTunes as well just for fun. This turns out into the least fun thing I've ever done. <laughs> like, you have no idea how many different little cables and bits and pieces there are. I've got, like, I swear, just six different devices for the normal podcasting. And then you've got to work out this software called OBS, which live streams to a thing. And we, we just tried to do it. And anyone who did catch that, there were like 200 people watching or whatever. They were like, we can't hear David. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea how to fix that. And then also, the screen was up there, and it was showing like two-thirds you and one-third me, despite it streaming my screen, which looked completely fine mm-hmm. on the screen I was looking at. Mm-hmm. And then also, we were trying to do all of this off a 2014 MacBook, which I thought would be, it was like my old Mac, and I was like, this will be perfect for, you know, this sort of thing. Apparently, that sort yeah. of computer can't cope when you're doing Audition, OBS, Skype, streaming, and God knows what else. Even now when we're just doing this call, this fan is going absolutely nuts. Sorry, rant over. Welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we'll cut that out. I do feel better now just getting it off my chest on the air. It's like therapy for me. Yeah. Sorry. How, uh, what are we talking about today? Today, we're, I mean, it's probably best we're not live streaming this one because of the content. Uh, so the, the, we're going to talk about how the trial of the century uh, in the 20th century, the first trial of the century, first trial called this uh, popularly, uh, was sort of... <laughs> that was the most complicated way of saying the trial <laughs> yeah, of the century. Uh, how it popularized the whole women jumping, like half-naked women jumping out of cakes. And uh, yeah. And yeah. I kind of thought this was Marilyn Monroe. In my mind, it's always Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, but I think I first she's, came across this in like an episode of The Simpsons, maybe? Yeah, because she had the movie, uh, whatever, some like hot or something like that, um, where, she, yeah. where she does that. Ooh, time for a pop culture ignorance moment. Have you ever seen a movie with Marilyn Monroe in it? Uh, just bits and pieces, so no. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. I don't think I've seen bits and pieces. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, also this episode, it starts off so entertaining. Then it becomes incredibly dark. So dark. Then just as you think it's got dark, it gets even darker. Well, that's what I, and then it ends like a little bit more. Hey. That's why I was saying some of the content is like, ah, maybe that's for the best that we're not live streaming our our random thoughts and comments. How does it work? Because I think this would definitely be an episode that probably, even though we won't say anything explicit, no. is I would I would rank this as an episode for adults, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's I mean the I don't know. It's interesting. What would you, I'd, I'd give it like a, a, we have like movie ratings in the UK. I know you have like R and yeah. these ones that I don't understand, but we have, I was just uh, on numbers. So you've got like an 18, which is people who are 18. Mm-hmm. You've got a 15, which is, I don't even know if that exists anymore. A 15 for people who are 15. And then you've got a 12A, which is for people who are 12 or accompanied by an adult. That's interesting. I, we, I, we, I'm, I would rank this as a 15. Yeah. Ish. 
No, I mean, I don't know. It's not like it gets explicit in what we say, uh, except for a few instances, and it's not really, I don't know. But I mean, they're not just ranked because it's like, oh, there's nudity or all oh, the swearing. It's like, I would say this contains like pretty dark adult themes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, definitely it a contrast. on pedophilia uh, and like rape. In contrast and contrast from some... modern society to what was, you know, back then acceptable, to, at least among the wealthy, I guess. Even though yeah, techni- technically still illegal <laughs> at the time. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It wasn't like um, it wasn't. Anyway, we'll get into yeah. all of this stuff, right? <laughs> good, good start. Just with that warning <laughs> out of the way. Oh, my, my question about that was if like, because you know, YouTube has that adult filter where you have to say like you're 18 or whatever, yeah. which I don't know, before I was 18, it was like, when were you born? Uh, 1st of January and then whatever date I can click on the fastest. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, are we starting with a quick fact? Yes, yeah, something a little more uh, lighthearted. So have you ever wondered what the M stand for in M&Ms? Uh, I'm going to say... Yes, I have. Awesome. It's plagued me all my life. <laughs> well, well, you're in luck. Uh, Seriously, I've never thought about it. Yeah. Uh, so in uh, 1941, Forrest Mars Sr. of the Mars Candy Company, he decided to strike a deal, strike a deal with Bruce Murray, son of famed Hershey president William Murray, because he wanted to develop a hard, you know, a, a candy, a chocolate candy with a hard outer shell. And Mars, he was thinking with the, I mean, World War II was already kind of in Europe, of course, but uh, the U.S. hadn't entered. But he thought if the U.S. enters, there's going to be uh, uh, chocolate shortages or uh, there might just be chocolate shortages in general from shipping issues and stuff. So he's thinking that. So he thought he'd like to secure uh, a partnership with Hershey to get, um, you know, access to their supply lines of chocolate. And so that's what he does. He approaches him. They strike a deal to make these uh, new M&Ms, which they actually, um, Forrest Mars Sr. actually first saw these in the 1930s during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, so they they had basically, it was M&Ms, basically, exactly. He just copied it completely um, and and made his own little M&M thing. And so they they strike a deal. Murray gets 20% of the stake of the new M&M. And, uh, and later Mars would buy out this after the war ended and there's no longer need for Hershey's chocolate uh, to to have access to that. So uh, in the end, M&M's stands for Mars and Murray, the, the co-creators of What are candy. your feelings about M&M's? Uh, peanut M&M's, great. Regular ones, uh, not good. I, I, I find the chocolate to be like as low quality as possible. Hang on, there's three types, right? Peanut, regular, and peanuts. Uh, peanut butter? Yeah. Wait, did you say peanut butter or just peanuts? Just peanut. I mean, peanut butter is okay. There's also almond. Yeah. Almond's all right. Um, what? Yeah, you've never had the almond ones? No. Yeah, they're all right. I, I still say the, the peanut Ooh. ones are great, especially when they you get the lucky ones that have like two pe- peanuts in them. You know? Yeah, man. Those peanut, are the best. We are, we are, uh, what's that? What's that clever phrase? To sim- sim- simpatico. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I regard as a clever phrase. <laughs> um, because the, the, the smaller ones, do you have Smarties? Some countries call uh-huh. them lentils. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, these are kind of like M&Ms, and those are also bad. Mm hmm. Um, and the regular M&Ms, what's the point? Yeah. They're just, they're just Smarties. Peanut M&Ms. Oh, those, those, are uh, my joint. I would always get these when I go to the cinema. The problem is my wife and partner of like seven years is allergic. Oh no. So my peanut M&M consumption has gone down as has my consumption of peanut butter. Oh, that's has gone down. That's not good. The, peanut butter less so. I still keep, pe- she's not like one of these people who will just, her, okay. her face will swell up and she'll die when she yeah. like sniffs peanuts. Yeah. But so I keep some peanut butter in the house. Yeah. But like peanut M&Ms are a bit, you know, don't want to have those around. They're too easy to mistake for something yeah. else and eat. Mm. Anyway. I miss, I, I don't miss them as much because I'll still eat them absolutely. But those are glorious yeah. chocolates. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know what's with all my tangents today. 
<laughs> just had, had a passion to know what M&Ms you like. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Dashlane. You've probably heard of identity protection, password managers, and VPNs, but do you have them? Are you using them? Well, not you probably should be. And the best way to do that is with Dashlane, which is a one-stop shop for all of your digital identity protection needs. Now, if all your passwords are the same, eh, we've all been guilty of this at some point or another. It's a really bad idea, and you can use Dashlane's password manager to create and securely store complex and unique passwords, making it less likely that your accounts are going to be compromised. They also have a VPN as part of their service, meaning that you can go and browse the internet securely and confidently, even in public Wi-Fi that you might not necessarily trust. In fact, you shouldn't really trust any public Wi-Fi. But it's not just that. They also actively monitor the dark web, the seedy underbelly of the web, to see if your information has been sold to some nefarious individual. And if that is the case, you can go in, you can change your passwords before that person gets access to your other accounts, which maybe share that username and password. Plus, Dashlane does what it's always done. It stores your passwords, it keeps your personal data secure, it fills all those annoying boxes for payment information in just a second. A lot of Dashlane is for free, but there are some premium upgrades you can buy if you want to. To see if those are right for you, you can get a 30-day free trial of Dashlane Premium. Just go to dashlane.com forward slash today I found out, and that'll be a really good way for you to see if it's it's just a good fit for you, and it probably will be. So just go to dashlane.com forward slash today I found out, and let's get back to the show. All right, so now moving into the main content of today's show is how did the trial of the century, or how the trial of the century led to the popularity of women jumping out of cakes. And uh, so we're going to go all the way back to just kind of the very beginnings of something like this. So we actually go all the way back to the ancient Romans. While they did not have women jumping out of cakes or anything like that, uh, what they did have is they gave us some of the first known instances of humans basically using food for a lot of, not just for eating, but also just for the, the sort of entertainment, the way they would make it and, and, and display it and things like this. Um, and so they would, they would have stuff like, uh, you know, peacocks and ostriches and dormice and songbirds and all that like stuffed in dude no no hang on rare songbirds i see in the yeah, notes and so i'm assuming it was like a point of pride it's like ooh, we found something in danger yeah and, and it wasn't just <laughs> that they would eat it to our it guests. wasn't just they would cook these things it was that they would also do like elaborate ways of cooking them so they would stuff one of the animals inside of another so you'd have like the largest animal so you might I mean, you could think think of it like a cow. Oh, like a turducken. yes Whoa. yes okay no we're taking to a different level no, yeah so you start with like you know i mean there was random stuff, but like if you wanted to go big, you'd have like a cow and inside that would be a pig and inside that would be like a lamb and then a rabbit and a chicken and a mouse inside of all that and stuffed with various things. Do you sense a mini documentary? Coming <laughs> yeah, on? well, there is, turns out. The Guinness Book of World or Guinness World Records, I guess. Uh, I always say, do you know it as Guinness Book of World Records as well? Is it just me? Yeah, it's a mouthful. Yeah, it? but, but it's actually Guinness World Records now and they changed it and it just always throws me. Oh, they did. Yeah. Um, so in okay. any event, uh, I don't care. I'll call it whatever. I please. According to them. Now, who knows if this is actually uh, accurate because they're not always, you know, mm -hmm. totally accurate on these on some of these sorts of things. But the current largest item available on a menu in a restaurant in the world is one of these very things. And it starts with a full camel. And then inside the uh -huh. camel is a lamb and then in a full lamb. And then uh, inside that is chickens. Uh, lots of chickens, as many as they can fit. And inside that, the uh -huh. chickens, they have usually uh, fish or eggs is usually or both. And then the whole thing, like at each stage, is stuffed with rice and various other fixing items. And then it's all cooked. Um, it takes about 24 hours to cook. And uh, so you, you have to order it well in advance. And it feeds, obviously, many, many people. And it's sort of an elaborate, very expensive dish to order. 
Okay, a couple of things on yeah. this. I did some looking into this yeah. because I was like, because it's it's January when we're recording this and I'm, I'm thinking about what mini docs we want to line up for this yeah. year. And I'm like, where are they serving this dish and how do I eat yeah. it? Because I think the Guinness book said it was like, it was available on a menu, right? Yeah, and, it, and there was some controversy over whether it was still available on a menu or this was just something that people made at one point uh, as whether the Guinness was right. But there does appear to be instances of it actually being served usually at like chic, you know, like really wealthy. Uh, but uh, at the same time, like where what restaurant still serves this is sort of uh, the the sort of skepticism, I think, uh, as to whether the Guinness World Records is being ac- totally accurate on this one. Um, did you find any restaurant that actually still serves this? I didn't find any restaurants. And I also found that it would just seem to be a lot of myth and legend surrounding it and not anything confirmed. But I'll acquiesce to you on that one. Yeah, I, I, it has been far better at this stuff. Than it has been a while <laughs> since I looked up this one, but I did find a couple instances of it so, uh, actually being served, supposedly. I mean, of course, the news news okay. reports aren't always uh, the most accurate things in the world and sensationalized things, but presumably that would be also what the Guinness World Records was going off of. Uh, but in any event, it, it's just an example. Going back to the, the whole point of this, regardless, is that the Romans... Wait, hang on, hang yes. on. I don't want to get off this just yet okay. because it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say the Romans, they they definitely did this sort of thing. I mean, maybe not with a camel, but with like cows and like just random things, you know, lambs and things that they ate. And it was just sort of an elaborate way to to present food as sort of an entertainment piece and, you know, a show of wealth and things like that and skill of your chef and thing, things of this nature. Look, whenever we do a live show of this podcast, not the live streaming kind, but where, where we go somewhere like yeah. a... a bar or whatever where people do podcast live shows where there's like a sort of like a comedy club or whatever where people do these things mm-hmm. we should absolutely also cook one of these things <laughs> i mean there's gotta be, be some amazing. chef somewhere that would do something like this i mean it, i bet there would be yeah. how hard could it be <laughs> like our audience who listen to this show or watch our like youtube channel there must be someone who knows someone who could pull this off yeah I mean, right. I, I presume they probably cook some of the stuff beforehand before stuffing it and then cook like the outer stuff. Well, it'd be a bit weird if they were just putting raw eggs in there. Yeah. So presumably uh, like the inner stuff is cooked beforehand, one would think, and then kind of stuffed and then the outer. Yeah. But in any event. Sorry, I can't get off how, how, how it's just because I'm a massive glutton and I love trying all the sorts of like different weird it, things. It def- I love traveling. But then I realized it's just because I love eating and I just love going places and trying new foods. This to me sounds not appetizing at all. <laughs> I'm just like, that's just That's because your diet consists of chicken breasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so the, I don't know, it does not sound good to me. It sounds like a mix of a lot oh, of things man. that would be gross. And I, I'll take the stuffed chickens, I guess, um, inside. But, oh man, no, no, I would embrace yeah. that. Anyway, sorry, we've uh, I've distracted you for long enough. Yeah. Do you continue? So, if we're going to the the um, the Romans, they sort of started to uh, uh, over time progress this to actually start to make the things appear live, like they were still alive and in action. So, so we have like Petronius, uh, first century AD, writes that there was uh, dishes where they uh, like had the fish seeming as if they were swimming in like seas of sauces and things like this, and they would do like he also describes one where, where a rabbit. As they put like a bird, uh, bird's wings on it, uh, you know, and have it posing like it's the Pegasus in flight or something. Uh, And so it was just, they kind of started, the important part of here is they were migrating to making it appear live, right? And so then if we fast forward 
to the medieval royals. And they they kind of started to take this to the next level. They they still did this sort of thing, but they would start to do, they started advancing like the peacocks. Now they would put the original plumage back on the bird after it's cooked. So it would look all decked out. And they even had, Dude. there was one, there was one account of grilled, they had roosters that they put armor on and then like not real armor, but just like little paper armor. And then they would they would just have it like as if it was jousting. So they would put it on like the, the roosters on like a pig and stuff. There was one account where they, and they sort of reenacting a jousting event and stuff like this. Wait, wait. Yeah. There's a cooked rooster in fake armor riding a cooked pig pretending to be jousting. Yeah, isn't that's great. <laughs> what happened to this? Now it's like you go to a fancy restaurant and it just seems to be a giant plate with a small amount of food yeah, on it. Yeah, this is way better. I'd like to go and see it. I'd like a rooster jousting. This is this is way better. And it's actually thought this is where the whole uh, the pig with an apple in its mouth came from was probably around this era. And it's thought for the same to ah. sort of make it seem like it was eating or something. Um, they even had, uh, there was one report of a <laughs> of, of fire breathing effect where they would put like uh, like alcohol and stuff in in the, like a swan or a fish, and then they would light it. So it kind of like fire breathe for a second. So, that, so eventually they start to migrate to actual live things. And so the first ones is like birds and frogs were particularly popular uh, to mm-hmm. bake them in. Or I mean, not bake them, but they would put them in afterwards uh, uh, in, in like a separate little part. So it wouldn't mess up the actual food item. Uh, but it was all kind of concealed inside the, the, the main food item. And so we have uh, one account of this is a 1474 cookbook by Maestro Martino. And he explains uh, basically how to how to prepare the, like a pie so that you can put frogs in, in it and not, you know, mess up the rest of it, and but still have the the frogs come out so that so you could still eat it, but the frogs are like popping out of it. So, so if you want to... <laughs> Should I read this yeah. quote? Yeah. Uh, in the empty space that remains around the small pie, put some live birds, as many as it will hold, and the birds should be placed in it just before it is to be served. And when it is served, before those seated at the banquet, you remove the cover above and the little birds fly away. This is done to entertain and amuse your company. And in order that they do not remain disappointed by this, cut the pie up and serve. Yeah. And dude, this is so cool. Yeah, and we have another. Uh, do I, is it weird that I find this like sort of, it's like performance and dining combined. Exactly. Uh, but like not debauched as the examples that, uh, inevitably become as we'll, as we'll get into uh, so, so, so they do, there's another one, a uh, 1660 British cookbook, uh, where he, he describes the same sort of thing where the, I mean, they put candles on the thing and the birds, uh, if you make the room dark, apparently he states this Robert May who wrote the cookbook, uh, says the birds would end up like going towards the light and like flapping and they would blow out the candles and then you'd have the frogs hop out afterwards. And then it would create, uh, as he says, it would cause the ladies to shriek, creating a diverting hurly burly amongst the guests in the dark was the, the quote there amazing yeah and this actually the so have you ever heard of like pie birds that's like still a thing ceramic pie birds no yeah it's so you put them in to pies and it just uh, functions as a way to allow steam to escape and stuff and this is thought to be where the whole idea of the pie birds the ceramic came from a good friend of mine runs a store that sells this sort of stuff mm-hmm. like uh dinnerware mm-hmm. i'm gonna ask him if he's got some pie birds maybe i'll buy some yeah, <laughs> yeah. um oh you know what i'm looking at by the uh-huh. way uh speaking of things like i like getting things related to the show mm-hmm. Remember how we discussed the Caganer, the guy who... Yeah. Uh, Did you get uh, it? I'm looking at one right now. Oh, nice. It's sitting on my little uh, nice. little microphone oh. volume control system. Well, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's... What's most notable about it is it's a very small man and it's a very large booth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a picture of this. Nice. Uh, maybe we can put it up on the website. Nice. Um, so eventually they even progressed this to doing humans. 
Uh, and so this this is the best one of all at this. So French engineer. Ah, this is how it's linking to case. Yeah, French engineer Philippe Lebon, uh, among mm-hmm. many other ostentations on Tremé's that he he you know had prepared, was one an enormous and this had to have been actually absolutely massive meat pie containing a yeah. reported twenty eight musicians who played as what? they opened the giant crust. Uh, <laughs> What? Yeah. How big a pie was Presumably, this? I mean, they couldn't That's... have cooked it, right? It had to just been dough, or may, I don't know. How would you? Have, I mean, there's no oven. Maybe do it in sections or something, and then put it all around the musicians or something. And then you'd have like a regular pie in the center for the people to eat. I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe. <laughs> God, this is really bizarre. Yeah. So, so either way, oh, and this was uh, 1626. The Duke and Duchess of Buckingham. This one was actually pretty famous. Uh, presented Charles I with a pie, and inside the pie was a dwarf named uh, who eventually became Sir Geoffrey Hudson. And so this one's kind of famous because internet rumors they always say that like he would, they accidentally cooked him in the pie and he died, but he didn't actually. He was he was still quite alive at the uh, time. Uh, there, uh, so in any event, this this all brings us back to women jumping out of cakes. So naturally, we have a lot of rich men and um, uh, fairly debauched in in some cases as we get into. And they, by the 1800s, seem to have, have gone to just going with attractive ladies jumping out of food things. Um, <laughs> as, they were like, you know what we could do instead of this dwarf? Yeah. A naked woman. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> um, so this seems to have been a thing, but the, the party, there was one, one party that popularized the practice. And um, this was thrown by one Stanford White, who is a, a very prominent architect of his day, like extremely wealthy extremely prominent and he's best known today just mainly for the designing of the Washington Square Arch is probably what most people would know him for but he actually designed a lot of a lot of other stuff like uh, the uh, the second Madison Square Gardens and uh, ton, tons of stuff like he has quite an impressive resume super wealthy super successful he throws this party in 1895 and uh, he gathered a lot of distinguished men as he did because he was super uh, super popular among all the elite around town in the country and so including Nikola mm-hmm. Tesla actually was there at this party. And yeah. so because uh, White actually designed Tesla's uh, Wardenclyffe Laboratory, which is the one that has the, you see the pictures of the Tesla Tower. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Mm-hmm. This is cool. Yeah. The whole story behind that's interesting. Yeah. So this this was probably how they met or how they knew each other. So either way, Tesla's there. Lots of super uh, wealthy people are there. And so the feature attraction of this is at a certain point, they wheel out an enormous pie out of which... Uh, according to actress and model uh, Evelyn Nesbitt, who's going to be who we talk about a lot here coming up, in that pie was a 15 or 16-year-old girl, Susie, Susie Johnson, wearing only a piece mm-hmm. of see-through gauze as she jumped out. Oh. And so Nesbitt would actually later report of this that also with her was a lot of birds came out at the same time. <laughs> of course they Yeah, are. and they flew around the room. And then Nesbitt, she later said that she... Oh, I don't want to read that. That's <laughs> deeply unpleasant. Uh, I told Mr. White I had heard later he had ruined the girl that night, but he only laughed. Now, it should be noted here that at this at this point, Nesbitt did have a very good incentive to try to make White look as awful as possible. Now, he does appear to be a quite awful person in some respects, uh, but the but he only laughed thing may have been thrown in for effect at the trial, which we'll get to a little bit later so it's not ah so this is taken from the trial yeah later later. so she was definitely incentivized to try to make him look as awful as possible and and what's noteworthy of that is later after the trial when she was no longer incentivized uh she Mm. softened quite a bit on her opinion of of white and like you know she a lot of her stories and stuff uh, about him so not really clear and he was he was dead at this point so he couldn't defend himself uh but he i mean there does appear to be enough evidence that he was quite the um uh he yeah you'll see 
we'll get to it. 15 or 16 yeah. years old. When was this? Is that was that? No, and this and as, even contrary as, to popular belief, even then this would have been considered a little bit uh not not appropriate. Not not quite right. Yeah. Um okay. Especially for the age of a lot of the men in like uh so what would he have been? White himself would have been in his late 30s, I think at this point. Okay. So, either yeah, way. It's pretty grim. Either way. So what what made this party stand out among uh, many others that had you know similar type things? And it turns out nothing at first. And in fact, it would take about a decade before this party would become sort of famous nationwide and uh, beyond to some mm-hmm. extent. And it became known as the Pie Girl Dinner uh, because uh, later, later, about 10 years later, White himself was murdered by the husband of Evelyn Nesbitt. Uh, so why was this first? Why was this so sensational? I mean, it's just one guy killing another guy. Why was this such a such a huge story? And so you have uh, the the setup here is you have one of the most prominent architects in the country, White. Uh, you have an insanely wealthy Harry Thaw, who is Evelyn Nesbitt's uh, husband. I think his net worth was like forty million dollars, which at the time, which probably would have been several hundred million dollars today. Uh, so and and yeah. Nesbitt herself was kind of she's often considered the world's first supermodel and first pinup girl and first uh, she was mm-hmm. extremely successful as we get into uh, on that end of things. Although back then, unfortunately for her, that didn't really pay well like it does today. I mean, she she did okay, but she definitely still she needed you know uh, she needed a husband still to support herself long term, uh, which which mm-hmm. is gets to the some of that incentivization that we'll we'll talk about shortly, but. Anyways, needless to say, this so you have these two really wealthy, prominent people, and you have the first, well, you know, this super popular model, uh, and you mm-hmm. know, naturally, this became front page news across the country during the entire trial. Sure, uh, that would that would happen, and in fact, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt at the time, because of the details that were going in of of kind of the story that we'll get into, uh, he actually tried to see if there were if there was a way to make it so the U.S. Postal Service could ban any newspaper that would print the details because he, he, he called them the full disgusting particulars uh, of the thing, but it turns out there wasn't a way to do it legally. So it didn't end up happening. The postal service. Yeah. He was going to see if the, he, he talked to the postmaster general to see if there was a way, if they could just, Oh, about just not delivering them. Yeah. Can we just, yeah, is there a sort of a legal way we can do this where we can justify we're just any, any newspaper that's going to print the details. We're just no longer, you can't send your stuff through the U S postal service. Turns out there wasn't a way. So, uh, they, what, like Roosevelt, uh, we did a big episode. We did several episodes. Yeah, he's, on he's pretty great. He's pretty great, but he was also not a big one for press freedom. Yeah. Like uh, we did, uh, I think it was on, um, maybe it was Biographics. And we kind of talked to another channel I run a little bit about this. And it's kind of like, he's a good guy, like 100%. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of cool things. But, uh, and well, this was also like the late 19th, 18th century. Yeah. When was he president yeah. around that time? Yeah. yeah. Um, he wasn't so keen on people printing bad things about him. And he, he also yeah, wasn't like today, like anyone it would be. He was also a pretty big supporter of like certain eugenics things and stuff, which I mean, to be fair oh, yeah. to him, but that was normal. That was completely like most people were. That was just very popular until, of course, the, the Nazis no- kind of ruined Nazis that. Nazis did ruin <laughs> it. Everyone was like, "Oh, wait a minute, let's." They they took yeah. it to the extreme. It was like, "Oh, wait, maybe we should rethink this," because you know. But anyways, anyways, so so how did this whole thing get started? How did this murder come to be? And so it turns out Nesbitt, when she was born, was actually quite uh, not like super fluent, more like upper middle class type thing. Her father was a lawyer mm-hmm. and uh, apparently it was quite encouraging of her education, which was weird at the time. Um, actually bought her a ton of books and gave her her own little library and was quite encouraging of her learning and, you know, all sorts of things that most girls of the day did not get. Right. And so, yeah, so but unfortunately for her, when she was around 11 
ish. It's not really known because she doesn't actually know when she was born exactly, just within like a range. Because uh, one of the problems was her mother would soon change it a lot to get around child labor laws. She would, uh, she, she, oh. they were coming about at the time. Uh, so she would kind of adjust the year accordingly uh, to just because they were trying to make ends meet and stuff. So um, I love this that just before there were kind of documents. Yeah. Yeah. So she was, yeah. She was 11-ish when her father died suddenly, and so the mother had to try to figure out how to support the family, and she really had no means to do this. So for a couple years later, this fast forward a little bit, uh, they Nesbitt's mother herself and her little brother are working 10 to 12 hour days at a department store called Wanamaker's. Um, just kind of working their various jobs, clerks and all that sort of thing. And when a random mm-hmm. customer comes in, and so she's, you know, 12 or 13 or something at the time, uh, somewhere in there. A random customer comes in who's who happens to be an artist. He thinks she's quite beautiful and, uh, you know, he wants to paint her, basically. So he offers her a dollar to to just paint her portrait, which is about $30 today. And so the mother, of course, was like, who's this guy? You know, this, you know, but she's, she said, sure, if I can supervise it, if I can be there when you're doing it, make sure nothing... <laughs> Weird yeah. is going on here. Uh, sure. And so- okay, I'm glad her mother was like that because I feel like everything else in the story would have been like, well, no. And then he 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 raped her and yeah. she died. <laughs> it's like the, well, the darkness of the story. That, that is a thing that would happen at the time. So, it, you know, the mother wanted to make sure. But, but there also were legitimate artists who just like to paint, you know, uh, people and stuff. So this, this turned yeah. out to be one of those. And he ended up connecting her with many, many other artists would, uh, you know, and so she very quickly became quite famous uh, around town as, as just, you know, uh, as for her modeling. And eventually she realized that... Someone to be painted. Yeah, someone to be painted. And she realized that she could actually make a living at this. And so, uh, to quote her... When I saw I could earn more money posing as an artist's model than I could at Wanamaker's, I gave my mother no peace until she permitted me to pose for a livelihood. And so this, hmm. yeah, she very quickly became... Uh, arguably the most famous model in the country. Uh, she even became Charles Gibson's most famous. So there was this thing he would draw like the Gibson girls, sort of the all-American woman type thing. Um, and so, I don't know Charles Gibson. I didn't know his work until actually reading up on these Gibson girls and stuff. And he also had a Gibson ah. man and stuff. But anyways, the, oh. his most famous of the Gibson girls was was Nesbitt. And he painted or he drew her as the in his woman, the eternal question. And so this portrait uh-huh. kind of shows her from the side and her hair is done up. And the way it's laid across like her shoulders is like a question mark. And so it, it was quite a famous portrait. So you can Google that if you if you like. I'm Googling it right yeah. now. Oh, when you search woman third, it's the first thing. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, in my mind, I kind of had her imagining like a her, her hair in this is down her shoulders in sort of a uh-huh. natural yeah, question yeah. mark. Yeah. Look, I got, in my mind, before I saw the picture, I had to sort of imagine <laughs> like her hair being like pointing upwards. Like a Marge, and Marge Simpson or something. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. To her, like, with like, no, this, this looks a big much more mark. natural. Uh, but it's a nice, it's a nice image. Yeah. And so this, this was the most popular of the, of his Gibson girls uh, portraits. So then she very quickly after this was featured in basically every popular magazine in the US. And she was, you know, as advertisements and as a general model and stuff like this um, mm-hmm. from everything from, you know, basically any products they she was very popularly used but she got really tired of just sitting around for hours on end while people painted her <laughs> took her picture and whatnot it was really boring to just sit there that was a, she didn't she didn't have bluetooth headphones and podcasts listen to did she, she didn't her job was just to sit there you know for all day while people you know looked at her and stuff so this this she got bored <laughs> with this naturally and so she decides she would like to get into theater but the problem is 
is theater at the time, like an actress to be an actress was basically, I mean, a, a good percentage were just you know, prostitutes. Like this was a way to sort of advertise their services. If really, yeah, if you were a uh, uh, actress, you could, you know, you up there acting and then the men in the audience could be, there was these orange girls. <laughs> there was these people called orange girls, women, obviously, and young teen girls, like really young, uh, that would very scantily clad who would just kind of go around and hand out fruit and things. So they would sell yeah. to the audience members. And then if you wanted to meet one of the actresses after, uh, you could, you could inquire with the orange girl if you could. And then they, you know, they would say if the, if the actress was available for that sort of thing. And, uh, and so this was, I mean, this wasn't all. So, Hold yeah. on. Wait, who? Because I know. Wait, and I'm just drawing on like, this is where I need to disclaim this is Simon's random memories of the past yeah. knowledge rather than research knowledge. <laughs> Didn't Shakespeare, because I, I, the immediate thing that came to my mind was, wait, where are legitimate actresses doing acting? And then I remembered, like, is it right that Shakespeare just had men in his plays and the men would play women? I've heard that, but I, that... I have no idea if that's actually true. But I've heard that same thing. But I've, I've. That's, Let's follow up on. Yeah, that. that's the. That's I know nothing about that, other than that I've heard it. Yeah, as well. Because I know there was definitely a lot of cross dressing and stuff in Shakespeare's plays, yeah. but I can't remember if that's because whether it was just for fun or whether it was because women didn't act in plays. Yeah. I'll follow up. Yeah. I'll follow up. But uh, so either way, this was a thing. And, and I mean, another way, even if they weren't acting as prostitutes, there were legitimate actresses who didn't do that. But it was just a way to side income because you didn't make a lot of money at theater at the time. Not like today where like a famous actress would, you know, just be set for life. Like you, you know, you had a limited time that you could make money and this was just a way to make more money. And so they would do this. And, and yeah. another thing the actresses would do, of course, was try to find like a wealthy man in the audience who would then take them as a mistress or a wife either way. Um, and then that was another way to set themselves up. So this was just sort of a thing. And so this had a bad reputation. She's a young teen girl. Her mom's like, no, you're not getting into theater. Uh, that's not going to thing for you. And so, but she was quite insistent. Uh, oh, I should say b b before this. So you, have you heard the expression said the actress to the bishop? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. So it's like, uh, is this a British thing? You guys British say, thing. uh, yeah. it's just a British yeah. thing. Cause I, I, the one I always hear on TV is like, it's, it means like, well, that's what she yeah, said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the same exact sentiment so everyone can understand. And it turns out said the actress to the bishop actually came about in the late 19th and early 20th century around this same time Nesbitt wanted to be an actress. And it was this exact thing. It was just because the, the actresses, of course, it came about from the, they were, you know, the idea of them confessing their various sexual escapades to clergymen, you know, working as prostitutes ah. and stuff. And so it was like said the actress to the bishop, like something illicit. That's oh, in, that's so cool. I never realized. Yeah. And so that was kind of the idea behind the saying. And that was, I mean, that saying has been around for a long time. Yeah, I had no idea what it meant, yeah. other than yeah. like, that's what she said. Yeah. And so... <laughs> but it's, I, I don't think I'd use that one, but like, yeah, eh, I guess like my parents' generation yeah. would probably use the, say the actress to the bishop. Yeah. But I don't think my parents are so crass, but like yeah. of their generation, yeah. people would. Yeah. And so, and just for people wondering, that's what she said actually came about in the, or at least the first <laughs> documented instance of it's known is in 1975 in a Chevy Chase Saturday Night Live skit, a weekend update skit. Mm. Uh and it would be later popularized by Wayne's World and then, of course, more recently by The Office. But um, I mean, it, it might have been around longer than that. But the first known documented instance of it was in the 1970s. And there was some like uh, there were some others like said the said the woman to the soldier or something was another one in like the 1950s or something. Uh, it, it, same sort of sentiment. But that, that's what she said appears to be a 1970s one. But I love yeah, it. Way, that, that's guy. <laughs> Needless to say, <laughs> that's what she said. Her mother was pretty against the whole acting thing for this reason. She's a very beautiful young uh -huh. lady and uh, lots of men already, you know, obviously based on her modeling career. Um, so she was just like, no, I don't think so. But, but 
eventually she gave in as long as the mother was like, okay, we could, we can do this, but I, I'm going to basically keep a close eye on you and supervise everything. Uh, so Nesbitt very quickly becomes a very successful actress and noted a lot of the accounts of her acting didn't really mention much about her actual acting, just more just how beautiful she was, um, was kind of the thing that often got brought up. So this brings mm-hmm. us to Stanford White. Uh, so they first meet, she meets, um, she meets him. Uh, he uh, sees her at a play, wants to meet her afterwards, and they meet in 1901. He's 46 at the time, and she was around 15 or so. And again, she she didn't actually know exactly when she was born, so ish, give or take a year. Okay. <laughs> Which is so weird. Can you imagine not knowing when you were yeah, born? Yeah, no, I'm just like, wait, like, not even her mother told her when she was really, like, just the year. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, maybe her mother didn't really remember, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Kind of weird. You don't remember the year you gave birth. Yeah, I mean, she knew her brother, I think, was like a year and a half younger than her. So, but either way, she didn't actually know. She just, yeah, she just said her mother changed the year all the time. So she wasn't really actually sure um, when exactly. But, weird. But either way, either way. So, so White, when he first encounters her, he actually seems, I mean, he's quite a charismatic guy, apparently, which is part of the reason he was so popular around town, not just his you know, how rich and successful he was as an architect. But uh, he was just a really likable guy. A lot of people liked him. Um, so which we'll get into it in a bit. This is another reason Thaw, Thaw yeah, hated him. Yeah, is this the same guy who plays... This is the guy who's, I don't know, like, judging on how this episode goes, he seems like a pretty awful man. Is this the same guy? Yeah, he does seem like a pretty awful man. And again, there is some question as to whether how awful he actually was. Right, because, because of the trial. He was dead... He, no one was there to defend him, basically, other than, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it, I mean, it does still seem like he was a pretty awful guy in some ways. <laughs> but he seemed apparently charismatic, nice. <laughs> Dear listeners, you will see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Coming up. Yeah, so he at first acts like he's going to take the like a paternal role. Like, here's this young woman. Mm-hmm. She's, she's being introduced into high society as a, as a beautiful young actress. People are going to be going after her. He's like, I'm going to take this protective role, help help the mother out in protecting this young young girl. And he takes in... Uh-huh. Yeah, he, sure. Why? And to maybe sell it, I guess, he also takes in her younger brother uh, to help him out. And he, help, he helps the whole family. Uh, he, he gets uh, the brother into... A brother's name is Howard. He got him into Chester Military Academy. And this was a, this was a kid who had no prospects, you know, uh, beyond. So to get into like an academy like this was huge for his life. And actually, Howard would later uh-huh. very much not like... The things his sister would go on to say about White during the trial. Howard was one that was like, "No, White was a good guy. Like, what are what are you uh, doing?" Uh, but either way, and he he didn't appreciate the 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 way uh, White was painted later. But of course, White was only ever like a paternal figure to him. He kind of considered him to be a father figure and and helped him out. So either way, either way, this this things kind of went the other way though. This is where White is like, "Ah, oh, no." Uh, so, so Nesbitt's mother, she has to, she's going to go out of town. And so she, and so White says, sure, I'll, I'll look after her make sure she's, you know, no one's going after her and she stays nice and safe. So he invites Nesbitt over for dinner when their mother's out of town. And then he takes her to his mirror room. And yes, he has a mirror room that is literally a room okay. with the walls, all wow. the walls and ceiling are mirrors and like a bed, like, <laughs> oh God, as soon as she walks in there, he's like, this is uh, this is totally like a Fifty Shades of Grey type thing, you know, like yeah. And he's got it's right near the room where she she actually got the nickname later the the girl in, the girl <laughs> oh God, in the I red. Thought you're gonna say like yeah the mirror room right next to his sex room. No, right next to his room that was the girl where she got the nickname the girl in the uh, red velvet swing because it's literally this like this room with like red velvet all over in this swing that he that he would it was a sex room yeah, it was basically <laughs> a, a sex room but anyways. So she's in there. They're chatting, having a good time. 
uh, sitting on a nice, comfy, like lounging couch type thing that you can lay down on. And so then she. <laughs> Why would you lay down on such a couch, David? <laughs> so he gives her some champagne, and Nesbitt would describe it during the trial as bitter and funny tasting, and I didn't care for it much. Oh, she's getting drugged for sure. She, it, yeah. This is what you always hear, right? Yeah. The bitter, yeah. at least in thriller novels that I read. <laughs> it's like any time. Any time, it's like that. Just it's such a trope. Ooh, this tastes bitter. Yeah. Anyone who's read a book, read a book, knows you're about to get raped. Now that would be interesting <laughs> to like note. Is it actually put in the back of someone's trunk and dumped in a lake? Is it? Is that? A, is that just a trope that people say, like in movies and stuff, or is it actually like bitter and whatever, whatever? What are the drugs they use for that? We should look up like Bill Cosby, right? Isn't that like all over there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just did a biographics video. It's not come out yet on Bill Cosby. Okay. I didn't really know anything about him because, like, he didn't really cross the pond. This was uh, really that story didn't. This was uh, no. I mean, the story did. Okay. It was like ah, uh, there's some like dude in America who's raping kids. Yeah, and I was like, oh wow, everyone loved this guy. No, yeah, and he was like wholesome, and so you know, like yeah, uh, he, and and he was. He sounds like he would have his own like weird sex. Oh rate. yeah. Uh, so, like so this this white guy follow up. It does whatever drugs they use taste bitter. I'm curious. <laughs> I don't want that in my history. Okay. Like, <laughs> what drug do you rape women with? <laughs> no, 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 I no. sent Carl one. I sent Carl Smallwood one the other day that was like that. Where I can't even remember what it was, but I was like, how? I know this how, one. How would you like your? On- how would you like your search history to look really bad? And he was like, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, he posted this on Twitter. And he just like wrote, he posted the screenshot asking for that article. Oh, I can't remember what it is, but, uh, and he just wrote, thanks, Devin. <laughs> and I just replied to it as well. Did thanks, he? Devin. Because okay, gonna... <laughs> I don't remember what I said exactly or what the topic was. If you want to follow uh, Carl Smallwood's Fact Fiend is his channel. His Twitter is also absolute. Carl just does not give a shit. <laughs> no, like, he doesn't. He, it's a, ama- like, he'll be calling out trolls all the time doing all this stuff. is insanely entertaining his twitter carl smallwood if you just look him up i'm sure he's on there it's very very good oh he had something very nice to say about me here that's nice in oh, uh, a completely unrelated tweet in which someone insulted today i found out and he went the other way <laughs> i feel like he should because he writes a lot oh, of he stuff. did a few <laughs> tweets he, he went on a rant a rant uh, on today i found out and my side Good for, good oh for wow! You, what, what was the rent? Do you want to share? Uh, someone was. Uh, I have literally hundreds of articles waiting to be published because the editor insists on fact checking each and every one personally, and I'm given broad freedom to make the articles. Oh, it was, it was about the ten minute thing about how like we're just you know padding things or whatever. Um, so either way, either way. Except most of our videos are uh, this is about ten minutes for getting so you can have mid roll ads, right? Yeah, which is not even something it's, that's ever even like crossed my mind at all. Like, to, I actually went on a rant. If you go look at our uh, one million subscriber video when we do the the uh, how how it's made, that's what the video is called. Yeah, and I actually go on a rant about this at the end because this this annoys me so much. Uh, so if anyone wants <laughs> to go look at that rant, I won't repeat it here. But yeah, and also you could just look at our previous videos. It's like oh, most of them are under ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go. Here we go. So Nick, Nick, there is a subscriber who asks, please do one on the myth of people sticking small rodents up their anuses. Oh, yeah, the Richard so, Gere thing. That's it. I send him and I said, interested in having your search history look <laughs> super sketchy. And he was like, he was <laughs> like, absolutely. And he's actually, he's, it's already pending. So it's, it's ready to, uh, to, for me to look at. 
I think that'll be a good yeah, one. No, totally. Uh, uh, totally if demonetized. demonetized. <laughs> yeah, we're not making money on that one. But it should be interesting. <laughs> it's like, hey, Great Courses Plus, we got a video about people inserting things up their butts. <laughs> Who would do <laughs> you that? You want to sponsor Who it? Who would do that? What about... Um, I, a lot of them, we get it like, they're, they're pretty flexible because I yeah. think they know that we're not going to, it's it's still going to be like, we're not going to be distasteful about it. No, so. we'd totally be professional about the whole thing. And I'm, you know. Yep. Yeah. I mean, as professional as you can be. <laughs> Sticking things up your yeah, butt. Yeah, I'm sure Carl yeah. wrote some jokes into it, but either way. I'm sure he did. So going, where, 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 <laughs> Sorry, where were yeah. we? Oh, yeah, we got, uh, we got he was on about the video. He was about to get down to some rape. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Definitely. Because she's had the bitter drink. Yeah, she becomes unconscious. Point being, shortly after, whether just because she drank uh, oh my god what a surprise yeah, whether she makes a lot of champagne or because he actually put something in it either way um either way so she wakes up the next morning according to her um and she says she's naked and white is also naked beside her and she also reports in uh, a graphic detail in the trial about she had like some dried blood around her lady bits uh so oh lovely yeah. and so this this she does not seem to this is one of the things is during the trial it's very like a traumatic as as you might expect, but later in life mm-hmm. when she's writing her thing, she doesn't really paint it quite the same way. Uh, so it, there's a minor question as to whether this was just like maybe it was more consensual than she made it out in the trial. But mm-hmm. uh, because you know we only have her original story to go by, uh, you know everyone assumes. And either way, either way, you'll see white white. This was not out of character for him. So moving swiftly on. The, the two became, she became... I like how it's like, oh yeah, taking women to your sex dungeon and raping them wasn't out of character for white. Yeah. How is that okay? And not just, not just <laughs> like, women, not just women, young teen girls was, he had a thing uh, for, so. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, that white, you know, he's yeah. known for it. Oh, what a great oh, guy white. that guy is. Yeah. Uh, but either way. He's so charismatic and rich. <laughs> Well, back then, yeah, you get away with a lot when you were rich. Uh, so White White became, Apparently. she becomes his mistress, though, the point being afterwards, for about a year. Okay. Also, what? <laughs> yeah. You got to probably see it from her perspective, though, even then. Her career as an actress, it's not like she's making money to retire off of. She was making money to get by, even as successful as she was, you know. Yeah, but still, she's obviously incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Um, but it also... Couldn't she take a pick of the weirdos? Uh, she does, eventually, as you'll see. Uh, but okay. there was a problem, of course, back then, is she's now considered by a lot of these wealthy guys, they want their virgin ladies, and she's now sort of that damaged goods type of thing mentality. Yeah. Uh, and so this was a okay. problem for her. And White was super prominent, and he could, very, he could at, the, at, at his word, just completely ruin her career and leave her destitute if he wanted. And, you know, he has incentive for her not to say anything because he, at the time it was illegal if he, for someone over 18 in New York to have sex at all, whether consensual or not, with a under 18. Well, this is like super timely. I know this was like a hundred some years ago, but, yeah. you know, given what's been going on in Hollywood and stuff, like yeah, me no, too, this is like... This is a, wow. totally. And so she has incentive not to say anything for for various reasons and he of course has incentive to make sure she doesn't so he's continuing to take care of her and her family financially and just you know i i don't know i, I mean so you can see maybe why she would stick around i guess uh what else yeah, what I, else was she I, supposed I mean, to yeah, do because you, if she i mean he could ruin her career and leave her on the streets you know and, and sure he'd get in trouble but he's also super wealthy so he might even just get off you know like so what's the point yeah no i didn't i didn't like i didn't want to say that this is like what else she, you know why did she do this it's yeah. like he's the weirdo rapey guy yeah but it's like it's kind of sh- yeah situation 
And she does. Wow. She does actually in her later autobiography and stuff. She seems to have actually liked liked him. You know, like like just on some level at least. Uh, she didn't really say that. Do you think in the how- trial? Uh, but but later she would again paint him in a much nicer picture than she originally did. So I don't know. Uh, it, because this all came out in that trial when they were on other sides of the court. Yeah. Uh, is it possible that this didn't really happen? I mean, the mirror room, the weird velvet sex. No, he definitely thing, had. A, he like, definitely had the mirror room and the red velvet swing thing. Uh, but we don't know if he rapes her. It's like because she would. She she was very incentivized to say that later because she was. Yeah, prosec- She was against him. But in she court. always did maintain that the that that really did happen. She did not ever call it rape, is what she. But she it happened. She always maintained that it happened exactly that way, which of course would would okay. be rape. But even of course, when she kind of changed her tune on him. A little yeah, time. she would still say it happened. She just sort of. Painted painted it as not like in the trial it was this okay. very traumatic thing at the time is she didn't paint it as quite so traumatic later in her autobiography but it's still rape either way you look at it um of, a, of, a t- of like a 15 year old girl for like a 40 some year old guy so whatever you want to either way uh so she doesn't tell anyone about this uh, eventually her her um her relationship with him did come about like her mother learned that they were you know sleeping together and stuff like that and he was married mm-hmm. at the time uh so uh, but and she she oh, also later would learn just throw that in there as yeah, well. Yeah, she would later learn, of course, that he actually had a book. Like literally, like, you always see this like the CD trope of the CD man with like the black book, you know, with like all the n- numbers. He like had one of these with all these girls' names and stuff that he would, you know, uh, all these teen girls. So he had many mistresses at the time, uh, and many more later. <laughs> and so the, eventually, this sounds like it is from a novel. Yeah, um, uh, quite the girl with the red velvet swing or whatever was a popular movie i think in the 1950s based on her life story it was i mean highly fictionalized version of it uh and wow. she got paid actually like 10 grand which was about a hundred thousand dollars today for the for kind of consulting on that movie but most of the movie's fiction um but either way either way uh so they he continues to take care of the family mother's not too happy when she learns about the relationship but you know what's she gonna do uh he's he's taking yeah. care of the son taking care of the family they you know they needed white to be not basically ruin her career either because then they'd just be out on the streets again. And so this this goes on for about a year and then they kind of break apart. And um, and so she starts to, as a famous, wealthy, beautiful actress, she uh, attracts many other suitors, including one Harry Thaw, who's, like I said, I think he was worth about $40 million, which whatever that is, a few hundred million dollars today. Uh, yeah. So he's courting her and, and culminating. And this guy is bad as white is. I would argue that this guy's way worse, as you'll see uh, in momentarily. This is the guy who he's also the the violent. Yeah, one. we'll see. He's kind of right. crazy. Uh, yeah, no, this guy's this guy's this guy takes it to a whole different level. Uh, so yeah. he takes the mother and 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 Nesbit across for a tour across Europe because she has an emergency, supposedly appendectomy, but there's also some rumor it was like an abortion, and they just called it an appendectomy. Either way, afterwards to help her recover. He takes her across to, to Europe, to a nice tour around Europe, into all these, you know, wealthy places. And then he proposes to her there to ask her to marry her. But she, despite his wealth, turns him down. And her thought process, according to her, was that she knew he was obsessed with women being virgins. Like, this was like a literal obsession with him. And like, to the point that the tour through Europe featured visiting many sites of famous historical virgins. <laughs> and like, he was taking her around to these places what? yeah and so <laughs> so messed up weird guy uh so and he also had a very really violent temper um so she knows this about him and but more 
Oh, uh, just by the way, he was rich. I just no, looked up the he was inflation in, on that. Yeah, okay. Like, he wasn't just a millionaire. He was into the billions. Okay, yeah, so he was insane. And so this, as you'll see later, it, the the fact that he had a violent temper didn't really seem to be the problem here. It seemed to me more that she just assumed once he found out that he would just not want to marry her, so she just turns him down. He asks why, you know, why are you turning me down? I'm, like, insanely wealthy and you're just an actress. Uh, so, so, yeah. He, <laughs> This and she she then explains to him. She reveals to him for the first person. <laughs> I, I sorry. I, I have to explain to you that this isn't how it works. Yeah, uh, back then this was exactly how it would yeah, work. I know. <laughs> you know, if you if you had an, ins- I mean, even today, there's lots of people who are like you, a sanely I'm wealthy sure. person would be like, well, okay. Um, like if you're destitute, like if you potentially might find yourself on the streets tomorrow if your beauty goes away and no one wants to see you act anymore, um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, and as a woman, of course, of this era. Uh, so this, she says, no, he asks why she says, she then tells him she's not a virgin anymore. And she tells him because of white and, and, and how the, that originally happened and how that affair started. And mm-hmm. so thaw, he already hated white because he, because he had that temper and he was a little bit crazy, um, and, and was known for this. And so he was not getting into the various elite groups around New York, like every application to them would kept getting rejected. And he was convinced it was because of white, white was bad mouthing in the groups when in fact, white really uh, didn't even think two thoughts about thought at all. <laughs> and so what thought wasn't even, but Thor seems, Thor seems a bit crazy. He is crazy. Uh, it, like legitimately it was a little crazy. And the family had a bit of a history with, with craziness as well. Um, he was very quite mentally unstable. And so, mm-hmm. but to Nesbitt's great surprise, uh, Thaw did not. He, he, well, he was, you know, conti- raged against White because White was sort of his arch nemesis in his own mind, even though White didn't even, you know, think much about it. <laughs> uh, so, so he still said he wanted to marry Nesbitt. But the problem was she turned him down once again. And you might be, well, why is she turning him down again? And it turns out not long after he tells, uh, she tells him about White, uh, about what happened, Thaw locks her up in cut. Kotzenstein Castle. He locks her in a room in there, okay. puts her mother on the other side of the castle. Then he proceeds for two weeks straight to severely beat her, including whipping her with an actual whip and then raping her repeatedly <laughs> over the course of a couple weeks. And she is locked in that room and she cannot get out. And dude, so I'm just going to throw this not cool. Not the way to convince a woman to marry you. I think no. this is like. Uh, either way, she says no, as you might expect. I'm not going to marry you, you crazy psycho. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. Uh, so eventually the tour ends. He, He's like, what was it? I don't know. Maybe it was the whipping. Yeah. Maybe it was the raping. Take your pick. Yeah. <laughs> you psycho. Yeah. Um, so they go. They go. The He apologizes after, says, you know, I don't know what came over me, whatever. Dude, this is so Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, I've never read it. I assume he doesn't do much <laughs> raping. But um, like the, the billionaire with the whips in the weird castle. Yeah, yeah combined white and thaw. And the young actress. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Was she a young actress? No, I've I never think seen she, the movies. I, never I don't really remember. I think she was a journalist or something. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, I think that's Author right. Yeah. Or something. Either, either way. So Nesbitt <laughs> says no. She goes home. She tells she starts, She starts. tells people about the, th- the thing that happened with Thaw and like the white one. And they were like, yeah, he's crazy. Like, you got to stay away from that guy. Like, so this, I mean, this was the real reason he was. Like, <laughs> she's like, oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. I didn't know he was crazy. Yeah. Um, 
So an, an interesting little side note here. One of the people who courted her after this was John Barrymore, who is none other the grandfather of Drew Barrymore, who would not have existed had Niz- Nesbitt uh, accepted his proposal. Uh, he asked to marry her, but at the time he was not famous and he huh. wanted to be an artist, not an actor. Um, uh, and so he wasn't famous, had no prospects really for resources and things, didn't have much money. And so she turns him down. Wasn't a good, was it? I mean, she actually seemed to really like him. Like they, you know, they seem to be in love or whatever. Uh, but mm-hmm. at the time, of course, she needed more than that uh, as a lady of the, you know, early 20th century. She needed more than just love. She needed some, you know, prospects, future prospects. And so he didn't have it yeah. at the time. And so she turns me It sounds like she was like, I need someone with some money who's also not a psycho. Yeah, that would be nice. I like you because you don't, <laughs> like you don't lock me into a castle and beat me and rape me. But uh, either way, uh, she turns him down. Oh my God. Yeah, I know, right? Dude, this woman's life, I, this, is... this woman's life is like a sad story. But then like when you read parts of her autobiography, like she talks about how she regrets nothing about her life because there was a lot of happy memories that if she had changed certain things would not have happened. So, uh, you know, kept positive upbeat. Super intense. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, seems like a, a nice, nice lady. Uh, but so this, uh, this going on for about four years straight after this, Thaw is still around. He's still wanting to marry her, still occasionally proposing to her. And she keeps saying no. And uh, eventually she is a little older. She is starting. I mean, her what happened with like Thaw and White is now kind of known around town. And so, you know, she's not getting some of the the prospects she once was. You know, she's getting more like the John Barrymores of the world and not these super wealthy elite. So Tha is this insanely wealthy guy. And he is apparently, she did actually say he could be a very nice guy when he wasn't being psycho. Um, (laughs) And so, and he treated her quite well uh, uh, during these non-crazy times. And so she eventually decides she's going to accept his proposal. Might as well. And so, so this Tha's mother was quite against it. So that whole thing you said about like, he put her in a dungeon. This was the same guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thor and White. Their names are too similar in a way. But yeah. Um, so, the, wait, the same guy who was like, he wants it, who's like, get in the dungeon for two weeks and then will you marry me? And she says, no, she ends up actually marrying Four years him. later, she ends up actually marrying him on April 4th, mm-hmm. 1905. Uh, and the mother, the Thaw's mother was quite against it because she's, you know, an actress um, and stuff and with the bad stigma with that. But uh, Thaw was mm-hmm. absolutely smitten with her. And uh, so, so they eventually, Thaw's mother says, okay, you can do it. But if you, she has to give up her career completely and no longer be an actress. And so she agrees because, okay. you know, what, she doesn't need the money anymore, um, nor, nor looking for a husband. So she agrees. They get married April 4th, 1905. Fast forward to 1906 on the night of June the 25th. So they've been married about a little over a year. And they decide, Thaw and Nesbitt decide to go to Mamzelle Champagne on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. It's a show. It was a new show. And they get mm-hmm. there. And who else is there but White sitting at his usual oh. table? And he he actually helped design that version of the Madison Square Garden, which later got demolished. But um, that one he helped design. And so he's thought before this had become quite paranoid that various people were out to kill him. He was convinced mm-hmm. uh, various groups were trying to kill him. And so he started carrying a gun with him. Uh, just he was, you know, paranoid and a little bit crazy. crazy. Yeah. No one was actually trying to kill him. Uh, so, so, but he's, so he's sitting there with his, <laughs> he's like that white guy who's been sabotaging me. And it's yeah. like, now nah, white doesn't even know who you are, man. Yeah. <laughs> so white is sitting there in a thing. And so, uh, Thaw is quite agitated about this. He's just like, you know, fixated on white and he uh, several times gets up to go approach white and then turns back and sits back down. He keeps doing this. Mm-hmm. And eventually during the finale, during the I Could Love a Million Girls, sort of the ironical song for this to happen. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, so the he completes the journey to White uh, and kills him. Uh, and so... 
Oh. Yeah, and so we're going to read the account, uh, or you're going to read the account from the New York Times uh, as Thaw approached. Uh, it reads, White must have seen Thor approaching, but he made no move. Thor placed the pistol against the head of the sitting man and fired three shots in quick succession. White's elbow slid from the table. The table crashed over, sending a glass clinking along with the heavier sound. The body then tumbled from the chair. There was dead silence for a second, and then Thor lifted his pistol over his head, the barrel hanging downward as if to show the audience that he was not going to harm anyone else. With a firm stride, Thor started for the exit, holding the pistol as if he was anxious to have someone take it from his hand. Then came the realization on the part of the audience that the farce had closed with a tragedy. A woman jumped to her feet and screamed. Many persons followed her example, and there was a wild excitement. Lawrence, the manager of the show, jumped on a table and, above the roar, commanded the show to go on. Go on playing, he shouted. Bring on that chorus. Musicians made a feeble effort at gathering their wits and playing the chorus music, but the girls who romped on the stage were paralyzed with horror, and it was impossible to bring the performance to an orderly close. Then the manager shouted for quiet, and he informed the audience that a serious accident had happened and begged the people to move out of the place quietly. In the meantime, Thor had reached the entrance to the elevators. On duty, there was fireman Paul Brudin. He took the pistol from Thor's hands, but did not attempt to arrest him. Policeman Debez of the Tenderloin station appeared and seized his arm. He deserved it, Thor said to the policeman. I can prove it. He ruined my life. And then he deserted the girl. Another witness said the word was wife instead of life. Just as the politician started into the elevator with Thor, a woman described as dark-haired and short of stature reached up to him and kissed him on the cheek. This woman, some witnesses declare, was Mrs. Thor. Yeah, so this happens, this murder happens, and then mm-hmm. Nesbitt's now facing the possibility, one, the uh, Thaw, you know, maybe losing her husband or losing any support from him. And then mm-hmm. she's also, you know, she had already given up her career, and now she's going to be super uh, notorious and maybe not being able to take back up that career uh, because yeah. all the details of, you know, her her uh, previous life there would, would get, is, is about to get out. And so during this time, the it appears that Thaw's mother says, okay, we're going to give you some money if you agree to basically make White look like the most awful person in the world and Thaw look like the like a noble husband just protecting your honor type of thing. And so this is why it's not really clear. It's possible, you know, everything she said was completely accurate and she didn't need to make anything up or, you know, whatever at all. But, uh, you know, either way, either way, what she did do was to give rather rather detailed accounts rather you know at the time Mm -hmm. it would have been more appropriate or more typical for the woman to sort of just allude to things instead of actually give the detailed accounts of like her relationship with white Uh, but she gave like all the details of just you know their various liaisons and stuff to basically you know get sympathy for thaw and be like well yeah any husband at that time would of course he's going to kill white like he did that Mm -hmm. to to you know uh, his his would become his wife so um this this was kind of the idea. If the if the trial went against Thaw, she was get she would get nothing. If it if it went in his favor and she testim you know testified as the as the Thaw's lawyers were kind of wanting her to, then she would get a decent amount of money, not like enough to set her up for life, but at least some. And she was still married to Thaw at the time, so you know maybe that would work out. Uh, that wouldn't later, as we'll see. They ended up getting divorced, but um, mm-hmm. so basically that's the strategy they went with. There was a, there was the alternate strategy the lawyers thought up they initially wanted to do was just to do the temporary insanity defense uh, and just go with that one, and then you know he you know probably I mean 
that would be a uh, no no doubter. The jury would rule, okay, sure. Uh, and but the Thaw's mother was very against that one because the are the family already had a reputation for insanity, and her son also had a, a, a reputation for being a little crazy, and she didn't want. If they went with that one, then it would just be something that everyone thought of him always. And so she wanted it rather to go with a noble husband type angle and see if that would work out. Like, even though it was still murder, if the jury would just be like, yeah, it's murder, but like he was but it's, justified. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she was hoping for that one. So the, the first trial, there was two. Wow. You look at it today and it's like, nah, this dude was definitely nuts. <laughs> yeah, he was. And he had, I mean, he was facing the electric chair here. So this was, this was risky, the, the strategy, because the, mm. the temporary insanity probably, I mean, that does seem to be kind of what happened. Uh, so, so, but the, the other defense were just relying on the jury to be like, nah, it's all right. I, no, I would just, I, you say temporary insanity. Yeah. I think the problem is if he runs this insanity, I don't know how the law works in the States or like present day law would be like, it's risky to run a defense of insanity because then you haven't, it's like you need to go to an institution. Yeah. But it's not a defined period. There's no real, yeah, well, and this, you can be there forever. This is, this was a problem later, but he, I mean, he was wealth, super wealthy, had great lawyers. So he, he eventually did get out, uh, was we'll get into, mm-hmm. but but this, the, the, so the first trial, though, they're going, oh, money. They're going, yeah, <laughs> especially back then. I mean, even today, but back then, even more so. Uh, yeah. So the, the, so they went with a noble husband way. And so that's kind of their strategy. It was shown later that they paid, the lawyers paid tons of people to come up and basically, you know, say whatever they wanted them to say about White. Sure. Uh, so that was the thing. And she actually, the mother spent a whopping half a million dollars it was about $14 million today on doctors to proclaim that Harry Thaw was actually perfectly sane uh, during the, the whole, the, the two trials at first. And then later, of course, to show that he was insane, but then later, of course, to go back on it and say, no, now he's actually sane again. And uh, this whole thing, so that, that almost $14 million she spends through the whole debacle. Yeah, but wait, she, uh, hang on. Was the, was the Thaw dude wealthy from his family or was he independent? Like, did no, well, fam- he family wealth. Yeah, I believe railroads okay, or something so, like I that. Mean, something like like 14 million dollars to someone who's a billionaire yeah i mean it's not pocket change but it's no. not you're not like yeah, and she was trying to get her son bad. out of the asylum so uh, right so it's like he where should we spend money probably on you not getting well but it, it is just funny that in the first in the first trial it's like to show that he's actually quite sane oh of course this was later and then later switching tunes would be uh, like no he's actually insane and then later switching back to no he's totally sane like he should just i think i need go. to I think I need to repeat, repeat my comments of, oh, money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So White wasn't around to defend Man's himself, obviously. And, um, and yeah, this, so, you know, there's some argument as to, you know, if, if he was quite as villainous as he was, but he definitely, the part that definitely seems to be true is that he, he really liked the teenage girls. So, um, yeah. Mm. So mm. no one was really willing to come to his defense and even his own wife, naturally was like, no, I'm not going to defend him. Uh, so the only person, prominent person, I should say, was journalist Richard Harding Davis, who uh, said simply of White. Since his death, White has been described as a satyr. Oh, I looked up the pronunciation of that and I forgot it. Um, sure. Never mind. <laughs> nah, satyr, we'll go with that. To answer this by saying he was a great architect is not to answer at all. What is more important is that he was a most kind-hearted, most considerate, gentle, and manly man who could no more have done the things attributed to him than he could have roasted a baby on a spit. Big in mind and in body, he was incapable of little meanness. He admired beautiful women, 
as he admired every other beautiful thing God has given us, and his delight over one was as keen, as boyish, as grateful over any others. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a so passionate defense. Yeah. Um, that was basically the, the, the one prominent defense, which isn't much of a defense. Yeah. Uh, but, well, you can see, hey, so you, this is the, we've talked about this before on this show, like, about the research and looking back into things. Yeah. And it's like, so a lot of this comes from this trial later, yeah. where a ton of money yeah. and a ton of people who are very incentivized to make a dude look bad yeah. say all of these things about him. Yeah, and so, and it, presumably his wife could have, well, Gwite's wife could have come to his defense and used some of the, I assume, the money that she, you know, still had around from. But she, obviously, with his many, many, many mistresses, because... wasn't too inclined to come to his defense on this one, so... But also, this guy is like, even though I'm sure she's wealthy, yeah. this guy's family are phenomenally wealthy. Yeah. Assuming oh, yeah. they live in the same city, these social circles yeah, White, are important. White was like, not at the same level of wealth as the Thaw family. So even, even if she had all the money, it still wouldn't, you know, uh, it would it would have yeah, been a I, lot more money against her, a lot less money. And, um, and I think she's probably got things to consider about. Like, he's dead. Yeah. What do I gain? Yeah. You know, uh, tan, tan, tangibly from coming forward and defending my husband. My husband's honor, he's dead. My kind of tangential honor. But if I come forward, this rich family, it's what, 190-something? Yeah. This family's going to destroy me. And her former rich husband, she, she might not even like that much because they didn't, I don't even think they lived together or whatever. It was one of those. Like, Fine. Has even, lots of mistresses. Even if, they, even if they were super in love, yeah. she's big time disincentivized not to come to his defense. Yeah. yeah. Either way, we're going to come back now to women in cakes. So during the trial... Whoa. Yeah, Nesbitt. <laughs> decompression sickness. Yeah. Nesbitt reveals the uh, illicit details. Was that that? Was this episode an aside? Yeah. <laughs> was this whole episode an aside? <laughs> kind of. I thought the trial was super interesting, so I, I thought it would be interesting. Oh, to I talk suppose about. I think we're titling it the, the trial of the century yeah, leading to the cake without thing. Without this but... trial, that the whole cake thing wouldn't have been nearly so popular. So going back to that is... In my mind, I just had this episode like the cake episode. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, this isn't about cakes at all. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, yeah. So she reveals the, the cakes, details yeah. of the pie girl dinner, because of course this makes White look like a really awful person once again. And this pie girl dinner really did happen. And there was lots of witnesses mm-hmm. and stuff to happen just, just how she said. So, uh, you know, uh, that one we can confirm was a real thing. So while this pie girl dinner, it wasn't actually thought to be the first time that anyone got the the bright idea to for like a woman to jump out of some sort of food item, large food item. <laughs> a bright yeah, idea. Yeah, it, it definitely uh, was the one that would genius. Yeah, that would make it <laughs> super popular, uh, and 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 it would gain in popularity over the com- coming decades, as you might imagine. So you read about these super wealthy mm. people having you know half naked women jump out of uh, cakes or, or you know pies or whatever. And this became quite mainstream by the 1950s. It was ba- ba- not just bachelor parties, which is kind of the way it's still around today sometimes. Uh, so it was actually like office parties was just common because, of course, at the time, most offices just had men or, you know, whatever. And they certainly were inviting mostly. Uh, well, you don't know the expression wingding? I just, we, we, we <laughs> share when we're recording these podcasts, we have notes in front of us in like a Google Drive documents. Yeah. And in the notes, it says... Uh, one thing I'd point out is he wrote it was downright mainstream <laughs> to have women jumping out of cakes, not just mainstream. But then also I see here office wingdings, and I assume that means parties. But what's a wingding? A lively event or party is the is the official. That's not a common usage. Or is or, it? or or how about Merriam-Webster's is a wild, lively, or lavish party. 
So that is like a perfect word for this. True. I did not actually I, know I the definition was that, was that uh, fitting. So there you go. To me, wingdings are the things you have in Microsoft yeah, Word, you yeah. know, instead of like a font, yeah. you have wingdings. Widgets and uh, things. So, yeah, so this became like a popular thing at the time in the 1950s. By the 1950s, it was, it was it was super popular. It was just like a thing that happened a lot. And it, uh, and they actually did, uh, contrary to popular beliefs, they did use real cakes even in the 1950s. Uh, it wasn't like fake ones. And so we even have, um, the, there was an AP News article from 1975 interviewing a San Francisco baker who exclusively made his living by charging $2,000 a pop, which is about $10,000 a day, to construct these huge cakes, which then he would place like a cardboard cylinder inside. And then it would be large enough for, uh, you know, a, a, a woman to to crouch down in and then come out. And so, and if you're curious, uh, the women who did this, the cake jumpers, according to this article, would make about $50 per, you know, thing uh so that was about 230 dollars today so not like great money but you consider it might be like you know an hour of work or something yeah not, not bad. horrible i mean you gotta sit in a cake also it kind of be pretty grim if it was like it was a guy who's just new and making the cake <laughs> yeah. and he was like oh i didn't put it in an air hole oh, yeah. <laughs> they just like surprise yeah, i wonder how they because they had to have Hello? had like a little bit of ventilation uh, especially if you're putting birds so. in there, like in the the pie, the pie girl. That's yeah, um, yeah. Which that couldn't have been pleasant, you know, crouching in the pie with the birds, like all these birds in there, and twenty seven other members of the orchestra. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, yeah. So you see it in like that. Yeah, it was some like a hot 1959 Marilyn Monroe. You have uh you know, mm-hmm. there is a lot of media references, and I think uh, was it the Under Siege or something was like in 1990s or something. Have you seen that one? I think it was that one that had the, no, the famous scene where the girl, I think everyone's dead at the party and she jumps out and like, you know, freaks out, obviously. But oh. either way, so this became super popular. And as you might imagine, it became much less popular in the 1970s to hold these things at like office parties as, as, uh, <laughs> as women enter the yeah, workplace. <laughs> this is not any, uh, something accepted to be done anymore at office parties. So it, it sort of bachelor parties became the thing where it was a thing somewhat, but of course they switched to fake cakes because it's cheaper and that uh-huh. sort of thing so just like cardboard cut out cakes and things to have that happen yeah. that's pretty much i think about the only place this ever happens anymore right like bachelor parties probably i i i thought it happened in movies from the 50s that was and and yeah. the simpsons i might be wrong about the simpsons but yeah. this i i just thought it was kind of like a fake thing or like historical thing i didn't know it still happened. no it's still uh still uh, yeah probably not so i feel like nowadays it's like the stereotype is to just go to a strip club or something for bachelor parties or stag parties or something rather than no, i didn't have a bachelor party i'm very boring uh, well i didn't uh, i don't think oh i went to a mariners game that was mine with my brother oh. so that wasn't quite boring nice. as well it was a good game yeah. though is it went to like 14 innings walk off grand slam by brett boone yeah people can oh, there you go people can, i think uh, edgar martinez ninth inning i think tied it up with like a two-run home run i can't really remember there's something like that. <laughs> no idea what yeah. you're talking about but fantastic. this way people can actually track down what the actual game was if people cared but <laughs> I, I don't think they did yeah no it wasn't point being not super exciting got, i think it was against the boston red sox it. i'm pretty sure it was about yeah, it was a boston red sox game <laughs> yes i remember i I have got my, like I have never been into sport. It's not just baseball. Like I don't give a crap about uh, football, uh, soccer, as you guys call it, um, anything. And everyone does. So I've just got really good at faking it. Just being like, oh yeah, yeah, that's real good. Yeah, cool. That's how. Yeah, good sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so at this point, I guess. So we no, should... 
I didn't. I didn't have a woman jumping out of a cake no. at a bachelor party. No, I didn't I have. Didn't. You didn't have it at the Mariners game. No, turns out no, would have been frowned upon. I think family friendly environment and all. Um, <laughs> but people might be wondering at this point what happened uh, to uh, the thaw trial. You know, the whole aside that half this episode was about. So mm-hmm. how did this actually turn out? Turned out deadlock jury at first, uh, which was a little bit of surprise. They had expected that thaw, they that the jury would just be like, well, yeah, he course he killed him you know he did the right thing as the husband should do or whatever but that's not how it turned out and he was risking the electric chair here if he was found guilty so this in a a, he ended up getting committed to uh well i should say then there was a second trial to sort of resolve this and this time the lawyers did go all right this was this was closer than we thought it should be uh so let's go ahead Mm -hmm. and just go with that insanity thing and just Mm -hmm. so then we'll work on getting him out later uh, at least he won't go to the electric chair if the second trial doesn't go. Oh, and it should be noted, this trial was the first one in U.S. history where the, the jury had to be sequestered because it was such a media hype that they had to actually sequester, oh, the, that's cool. sequester the jury to, you know, because there were so many different things being printed, whether true or not, you know, at the time. So uh, so th- this was the first U.S. trial where that de- was deemed something that was needed. And mm-hmm. so they did this. And then so they did the the insanity thing. He, of course, that that one was a lock. They yeah, he is crazy. Um, so the, so he ends up finding himself in an asylum supposedly for life. But then at a certain point, he literally just walks out of the asylum because, uh, in the asylum, he was given lots of perks that no one else got, you know, he basically could live lavishly in there. Being a billionaire. Yeah. And, and so he eventually just walked out, got in the car with a driver that had been prearranged and, um, and wow. drives to Canada. Um, so he goes to Canada in 1913 uh, but Canada is like, no, we're going to deport him. They eventually decide to send him back to the U.S. So he's then once again put in the asylum. But in 1915, they finally got him declared completely sane. And so he gets out. But then what does he do? What does he do? But the first within a year, he kidnaps a 19 year old guy named Frederick Gump, takes him, locks him up, whips him, beats him and sexually assaults him. Similar to the whole Nesbit thing back in the castle. Oh and so God. he very this quickly guy. finds himself uh, back in the asylum. Uh, the, the family did offer a, a boatload of money to the to the Gump family to drop charges and just say it never happened. Uh, but they 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 did actually settle some amount. But um, it was they didn't. You know, he he still got locked up and everything. Whenever this happens, yeah. whenever something <laughs> like that happens, it's like, and how many times did they say yes? Yeah, and it's like within a year he did this. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. No, within a year he did this, yeah. and the guy didn't want to get paid. Yeah, what, what, yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. especially when it's the billionaire who would have to go back into a mental asylum, that check's going to get pretty big real fast. Yeah. Um, in any event, by 1924, he was released from the asylum once again. So he was in there. What was it, eight years or so? Uh, and he ultimately led a you know not nothing too exciting happening in life. Dies in 1947. He did actually leave Nesbitt. They had gotten divorced. I think it was around that 1915-ish range when he was declared uh-huh. sane. Um, so she did have a child, supposedly by him, in 1910. But like she had conjugal visits, or he had conjugal visits and stuff like that. And she claims the boy was by him. But they, the Nesbitt basically 
he had heard, read newspaper accounts because she was still quite famous, you know, and newspaper, you know, as media will do, will follow them around. And she she was seen about town with, you know, in the company of various men, whether she was actually, you know, doing anything or just, you know, having dinner or whatever uh, isn't isn't mm-hmm. really clear. But either way, he got quite jealous. And so, you know, cuts her off from financially and stuff. So she has to kind of make her own way. Um, but she claims in 1910 they did have a child together. It's her only son. Um, he denied it and uh, never, never claimed the boy as his. And she eventually gave up. Um, even though supposedly, I mean, she said, just look at him. He looks exactly like his father uh, type of thing. That was kind of her main argument, um, you know, but either way. This was before uh, Ancestry yeah. DNA. Yeah. <laughs> either way, she eventually gave up, you know, trying to get, you know, any inheritance or whatever for her son. Um, he actually became, her son became a quite successful pilot, a stunt pilot in uh, various races and also in World War II, uh, quite successful career. That's cool. And he would have, he would go on to support Nesbitt in her old age and stuff. Uh, but, uh, but either way. He did, thought denied it. He said, no, that never happened. So going back to Nesbitt, what happened to her? So they get divorced. She gets married again, gets divorced because uh, partially the relationship was a little bit struggled because of the how famous Nesbitt was in the media. Uh, it was he was he was kind of considered Mrs. or Mr. Nesbitt, you know, and that, uh, of course, for the early 20th century man was a little bit of a blow to the ego um, and mm-hmm. stuff. So anyways, their relationship didn't go well. They got divorced um, and she did reconcile with Thaw a little bit. They became at least somewhat friendly, though they did not get back together eventually. Um, and Thaw did leave her $10,000 in his will when he died, which is about $112,000 today. But otherwise, she just did various jobs. She did some acting, uh, some silent films, and then uh, she worked at a burlesque place, but not as a not as a stripper or anything. She just worked there. And eventually, she found herself in California, where she taught sculpting and art, uh, which was kind of how she finished her career. Uh, just teaching, teaching that, and also being kind of taken care of by her son. There you go. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That was an eventful life. Yeah, dude. This there was some really. This was this is quite a dark episode. I know we've done some dark episodes, but this one's kind of like, eh, unpleasant. It is, and with the, all this, so. this woman put up with not just like all the stuff in her early life, but also the media attention for her, you know, much of her life and stuff like that. She, if you read like a like quotes and things from her, she was like a positive person. You know, just like kept a good upbeat attitude. And that's amazing because you think about like all that she went through to not just like, I mean, she did at one point try to kill herself. So that's something. But like, uh, you know, she she didn't in the end. Uh, I think it was when she got fired from the one place and she was back to, you know, no way to support herself. Uh, I can't remember the Moulin Rouge Club or something like that. She got fired from something like that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. But overall, quite, quite a remarkable woman, I think. Um to just keep that positive attitude through everything that she went through is quite amazing. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Should we do some follow-up? We should. I have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone wrote, I think it was an email maybe, that it wasn't Sicilian pirates. Do you remember we were talking about Julius Caesar getting kidnapped by pirates? Uh-huh. That was a long like, time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> I, I don't think this email was from that long ago. Or Okay. I should have wrote in the notes where this came from so I could give the person due credit. I apologize if you're listening. Um, but they were like, it was actually Silesian pirates. Oh. Well, that which, that only changes the joke at the end, right? There was a joke about the yeah, Sicilian yeah, yeah. pirate and never go like, up against a Sicilian when death's on the line or something like that. Worth it for the joke. It was. It was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there you go. I just thought I'd offer that. Then, my uh, a more important one. Uh, can you drink aboard navy vessels like in the movies oh yeah we had a couple of people like, ring in on this uh we did i saw on the comments just the other day 
Um, and people seem to come up with exactly the same conclusion that I did. I came up with a couple of recommendations on where people can go to read this. There's a great one on themilitarytimes.com. And basically the UK, the Royal Navy, they've just made like a vessel, the first vessel, and it's got a pub on it. And so basically if you're an officer or a senior enlisted man, so basically if you're like higher up in the ranks, Mm -hmm. you can go hang out on this pub, on this new vessel. Really? And there's even a local brewery from where the, the ship was setting sail from whatever. And they made them their own special beer to have on board the ship. And I'm like, that's really cool. Yeah. You know what's disappointing, mm. though? Mm. If you're in the US Navy, US Navy, that's what you call it? Mm-hmm. Total abstinence. Uh-huh. Almost. Almost. You can't drink at all. There's no, like, in my mind, it's like at some point they have some celebration, like Tom Cruise comes home from like shooting down some bad guys or whatever. And there's a guy with like a cooler filled with bad American beer. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, he's he's like throwing it out to the other guys and they're like cracking these beers open and there's like a slow motion shot of Tom Cruise drinking beer from a can or whatever. Mm-hmm. and Or like in Vietnam movies, or maybe there was beer in Vietnam, but they always seem to be drinking beer or whatever. Yeah. But I guess that's a bit different. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you can have two beers. Each sailor is entitled to two beers, but that's if the ship has been at sea for 45 consecutive days and that's just on a one-time basis. So if you're at sea for 45 days... They will give you two beers after 45 days. I wonder how much, though, like, even though that's the rules, is there, like, contraband? You know, is anyone really keeping track of who drank their two beers and who who didn't? You know? I'm going to... I don't have it specifically for naval vessels, but I yeah. do have some follow-up uh, about the war in Iraq, okay. which I'll get to in a second. Uh, you want to contrast... So the British, they've just built their first ship with a pub. The US, they don't have any pubs. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the French. (laughs) They have this giant aircraft carrier, or I'm pretty sure it's an aircraft carrier uh, called the Charles de Gaulle. Mm -hmm. On this ship, they have four bars, (laughs) four individual bars with milk to drink. Naturally. And uh, a lot of the articles talking about this just brought up like this is a big cultural difference between like France and the US. It's like casual drinking of alcohol is just like a part of the French culture and you can't take yeah. that away from them. Yeah. Uh, so, and they're allowed, they're only allowed one drink every day. So I guess at um, the end of their shift, they can go to the bar on the, one of the bars. Do they the also Charles have like can... four hour shifts? I don't know. Is it normal to have four hour shifts? <laughs> no, I just, uh, the French have the reputation of what, like the 30 hour work week ah, or 25 ah, hour work week. Ah, uh, is this also, is this also in the, the Navy reflected or do they have actual more? You know, do you want to do follow up on follow yeah. up? <laughs> uh, however, there's one exception. So, if you're a US sailor, mm-hmm. and because the US and France are allies and they occasionally do operations together, currently there are 10 uh, US Navy personnel serving on board the Charles de Gaulle, and they are allowed to drink with a Frenchman. Oh, so, those are the 10 nice sailors gig. in the US Navy who can have a beer after work. Hey, this is Simon jumping in during uh, the actual edit of this podcast. This bit, uh, just listening back to it, uh, I didn't really feel that this was what we wanted to put on this podcast. It's just a little too grim. There's going to be references to it throughout, but just listening back, it really wasn't it, we, I, I just didn't really felt it belonged here. If you do want to learn more about this, we'll put a link to a news article in the description of this episode so you can click on that. But I just thought we'd keep it a little more not exactly cheery. This is not a cheery episode, but this stuff just got too dark for the show. I didn't want it in here. Let's get back to the show. And if there's weird bits missing, that's why. Link in the description. Let's move on to something a little more cheery. Yeah. So 
we were asking like, you know, pirates wearing their eye patches, uh-huh. did they do it to go below decks? Oh yeah. You look like up. so if you're like above deck and you yeah. want one eye to be able to see in the light and then go below deck and one eye to be able to see in the dark. The short answer is basically we don't know if they wore them to go above or below decks. Um, it does work. Mm-hmm. It is definitely something that could have happened. Mythbusters tested it out, but there's no firsthand accounts of this actually being why they wore eye patches. It's just speculation. Mm-hmm. The subreddit, Ask Historians, which I didn't know about, which is excellent, um, there was a whole thread about this. And there was this wonderful thing, kind of like people, they kind of explained how this myth kind of came to be. And it was kind of basically treasure islands. And then people thinking of that being how pirates, how they are. And then also Mythbusters. And then basically Mythbusters showing this thing and people assumed, ah, oh, yes, because it worked, it happened. Mm. And the Ask Historians are quite salty. They're like, uh, Mythbusters is entertaining, but it's not history, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not really always very good at actually definitively busting myths either. Either way. But um, they definitely say they've busted myths sometimes, but then you're like, well, but wait a minute, you're methodology there makes it so you can't really say anything definitive at all but at the same time they're making it you know an entertainment show with a you know well, you're not you're saying schedule, it's not reviewed t- yeah a tight schedule and all that so not i realize how hard that job must be and uh yeah i'd also say you know tight schedule also mythbusters is what like an hour long yeah it is the most drawn out show of like Getting to the point. There's even a YouTube channel called Mythbusters for the Impatient, which takes Mythbusters episodes and cuts out all of the unnecessary stuff and they're like 10 minutes long. Of course, we are now like, what, like an hour and 40 minutes into this episode. So people are like, wait a minute, this was supposed to be out of women jumping out of cakes. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> we do tangents, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I feel it's a little different. Yeah. Like, we've got some fluff. I find Mostly they're from, the uh, interesting tangents. What did we go over today? We went history, like food dishes. We went to the, the said the actress to the bishop, and that's what she said, origins. That's what she said. Women jumping out of cakes, the, the dwarf jumping out of a pie. We got a super interesting and, you know, debauched trial and all this. So, you know. You know what we don't have today? Hmm. Reviews, because this episode is unbelievably long. Yeah, it's probably Let's for the best. Let's catch up with those next time. Yeah. Sounds well, good. This one was good. I enjoyed it. You know, probably for the I best. Enjoy it. Probably for the best that we didn't actually live stream this one. Yeah, I wonder when I'll listen to it back and it's like I say something, yeah. uh, you know, like accidentally inappropriate. Yeah. No, exactly, because you get that like a quote taken out of context, you know. Yeah, and and sometimes you could probably stitch also, this together to say. also the tendency to sometimes when something's like so absurdly awful to just laugh. You know, and that can be taken out of context. It's like while we were recording this, I was thinking that very thing. It's like I'm laughing at this. Yeah, it, but it's, it's not because, because it's, it's so funny. absurdly awful that what else can yes. you do but laugh? And I think actually there's been a, a couple episodes where people have critiqued because I do that a lot, and it's like, well, that's just what else can you do? Uh, that's you know, it's not like I don't think it's funny. Uh, it's just you know, and actually a well, little so you, another a tangent. It turns out mm. I can't remember the exact thing. Let me just Google it real quick here. Uh, the people actually almost never laugh when they think something is funny. Like it's actually most laughter has nothing to do with humor at all. I read this as well. Um, did we make we, a video about this? Why we laugh? I believe we did. I don't know if we made the video, but I've definitely covered it and it's quite interesting. Uh, so yeah, there was a study, for instance, there was a study covering 2000 cases of natural occurring laughter. Um, and it's uh, and most of them were just like ha and just like random laughs. And 
oh, I didn't put the percentage on this part. I'd have to do some more digging. But uh, either way, it was the vast majority of the cases were just the short ha-has and had nothing to do with humor. They were more just like a, almost like a... Uncomfortable. Yeah, a social glue type thing to sort of like, almost like acknowledge <laughs> you were listening to someone or this sort of things. Or like you say, like these uncomfortable things where it's just like something's absurd or horrific or whatever. And so uh, laughter actually is is used in a lot of different uh, contexts, not just humor. But um, But yeah, I'm sure... We'll get some comments about some of the laughs and probably best. That's your excuse anyway. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously you do find this hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Also, another thing I do want to point out is not, people sometimes don't always get my sarcasm. Yeah. When it's like, when I say, when we're talking about like, uh, oh yeah, so he took her to a sex dungeon and raped her for like two weeks yeah. and then she marries him. And I say, that seems like the logical choice. I don't mean that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that as it is not the logical choice. It's a terrible, weird decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had that. We had one. I yeah. can't remember what it was. Uh, Drew commented the other day, our ad guy who's amazing. Uh, he was like, he was uh, something. We said something and it was totally, it did, it came across as we were just totally being serious and we were actually quite the opposite of that. Oh, the one about etymologies. Yeah. About what being popular. Yeah. And, and it did sound like we were being totally serious, but no, those, those are, those never do well. Um, contrary no. to what we they said. are very entertaining yeah but they never do well no never um, at least for me yeah. i don't know i find it more entertaining yeah yeah i do I, I think they're kind of interesting to see the and uh see the evolution of things but um all right we've prattled on enough this was Should we uh darkest episode yet although yeah. no we did have the i don't know i would say this is a little darker than like the the killings ones where we had the, like the mass murders or how about the the uh. horrific love story one I, I, I always feel the ones where it's like, where there's that weird power dynamic of people getting screwed over by people who can just utterly control them. Yeah. Is always just a little bit more Well, and you feel so bad for this Nesbitt. Like, you know, like what's she supposed to do in that, you know, time and like... Right. Like, like what the saying, position like, she was in. Why was did she like, get... Yeah, yeah. You just feel bad for why her. Why did and she then, marry the crazy dude? And it's like, well, she didn't do it because she was... Yeah. Like, she's not at fault here. No, and she's like uh, a remarkable just for like, you know not killing herself basically <laughs> at a certain point with all the stuff she went through, like a, a quite amazing uh, woman, I think. Um, but either way, amazing person, I should say, uh, just, you know, to, to stand up to that all mentally and everything, but darker. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this one was darker. I, I'd take the, the murder ones. It's less dark. Yeah. I'd rank it as so as well. Yeah. Well, especially when you throw in the, that's the story with the soldiers at the end caps it off. Yeah. Let us never speak of that again. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> I was, I'm always torn about this. Sorry, I know I just said I wanted to wrap up, but I'm always torn about discussing this sort of stuff because yeah. it's like, you don't want to talk about it, but it should definitely be brought up because it's kind of like, this is something super horrific. Yeah. It's like people should know about this. Yeah. All right. On that jolly note, mm -hmm. it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to you very soon for another episode. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. What's most notable about it is it's a very small man and it's a very large boo. <laughs>